Welcome to Chris's Rambles on StoryArchaeology.com Ramble 2 David and Goliath meet Lou and Balor Some reflections on a journey to discover Irish stories Stories Great flapping ribbons of shaped space-time have been blowing and uncoiling around the universe since the beginning of time and they have evolved the weakest have died and the strongest have survived and they have grown fat on the retelling. Now that's a quote from one of my favourite Discworld books by Terry Pratchett, which is abroad. After all these years, it still makes me laugh out loud. And as a storyteller and mythologist, I think Terry Pratchett kind of just got it right. Stories travel and change every time they are told. Even written versions morph on the move, adapting to the new environment in which they find themselves. Central elements of location-specific stories may retain ideas that in their new setting can just look bizarre, exotic, even magical. There's a story that I've often told. I was given it by one of my puppets. Uh, Wait a minute, that sounds a bit odd, so I better explain. My storytelling shows for younger children have always included puppets. One who joins me quite frequently is an engaging frog. I think I found him in Australia. I can't really remember now. Come to think of it, he has never let me know his name, and he still goes by the title Froggy. Don't ask me why. Now, some of my animal puppets, like the frog, or my most popular puppet, Bunny Hop the Rabbit, seem to give me very old stories indeed. Creation stories. The how things became stories. Stories like that, well, they're found universally. Now, the best story I got from Froggy was a First Nation Australian story about Tikalik, the frog who swallowed all the water in the world. As a water animal, the frog decides, he in this case, has the right to drink every drop from the first waterhole of the new-made world. The other animals have to find a way to squeeze him to get enough water to survive. Whereas I would, of course, never tell this story in an Australian library, it isn't mine to tell, but I suppose in some senses it is froggies. My version allows me to let the story convey to young children the entrancing beauty of water and the essential nature of the water cycle. However, what I've only discovered recently is that this story in its native Aboriginal setting encodes important survival information. Patrick Nunn in Edge of Memory tells a story of how First Nation people may still know where to find the hiding frogs who hold water that can be squeezed out by thirsty Aboriginal travellers. Now this is turning out to be a bit of a long-winded introduction, but if I'm going to set out on today's ramble, I thought that I had better try to describe its starting location. Well, just a bit. It was a recent email from a story archaeology correspondent that set me thinking about taking this particular ramble. He was surprised, apparently, by noticing Old Testament biblical parallels in some of the early Irish stories. He referred particularly to the story of Brest, the half-foveran king of the Daedonan, who causes such chaos in the Cathmagaturid. He's quite correct, of course, although he pointed out a parallel between Bress and King Saul that I can't say I'd noticed before. However, there are many others. 
Here are three, all quite different, but all taken from early texts. Going back to the Kathmakaturid, in the confrontation between the Daedonan battle champion Lu and the terrifying and huge Fovera battle champion Balor, you can't help noticing that this is a real David and Goliath contest. In fact, the new young super champion, the Ildonok, the many crafted one Lu, defeats his enemy with one stone from a sling. The Kath Magaturid has survived in an 11th century written text, but demonstrates its 7th century or earlier oral language. Yet it still retains a much earlier Iron Age context. But the parallel does seem to be there. Or let's take the Imrov Bron, the Voyage of Bron, a text credited to the 7th or 8th century. The annunciation of the wonder child Mongorn by Mananan appearing to Bran on the sea is a significant incident with strong biblical resonance. And as a third and completely different example, there is the Dinhyenicus of Dold, uh, where the sun is stopped in the sky. Now this just might find parallels with the story of Joshua. You know, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. We could explore a bit more, but those three stopping points will do for now. As I mentioned, they are very early stories. In fact, it's perfectly possible that the Dothdinjenica story told of the third of the Neolithic Brunaboyne mound groups may primarily reference the likely winter solstice sunset alignment. That would make it a story dating back a possible 5,000 years, long before the late Bronze Age setting of the Joshua narrative, but Shinskelela. Now, don't get me wrong. Both are mythic narratives, no connections, no comparisons. But however, it is likely that the early Irish storyteller poets were well aware of the parallels that they were drawing. So let's take a look at these well-storied poets. These stories, and so many more, seem to represent the centrepieces of an early Irish oral tradition. Early medieval Irish society had a prominent and often highly trained poets class, able to travel freely between the tribal tours. These qualified filly carried a very high status. They could act as predictors and analysts of events, heralds, reporters, keepers of law and so on. They could also create powerful poetry which could praise a king, a queen or a warrior, but could equally speak satire, causing a catastrophic loss of status. They truly could make the world with their words. By early medieval times, active connections with the European continent and clerical literacy was also a factor. Those early Irish clerics were an odd lot, really. Christianity caught on quite early in Ireland. The dates for the fairly well-documented St. Column Kill are given as between 521 to 597. He was a high-ranking noble of royal descent from both sides. His biographer, Adolf Norton, said that he had a huge, booming voice. He was also a warrior prince who went to war over a copyright dispute. Well, that's the short version of the story. The early Irish church is really not my main area of interest, but they do come across as an idiosyncratic and independent group, much like the earlier Irish poet class. Also, not at all governed by Rome. Nothing to do with Rome. These literate clerics seem to have cared enough to have been willing to collect, collate and curate the Irish native oral tradition. A couple of examples. Let's return to the voyage of bronze since we've passed that way before. 
Every so often the recorder of the story remembers that he's meant to be Christian, but then slips back into effusive praise for Mananan and the coming wonder poet Child King, who will be the one to maintain the open flow between this and the Irish other world. He might comment on the Christian heaven, but is far more interested in extolling virtues of the Isles of the Blessed where original sin does not exist. And I have already evoked the remarkable Colm Kill. There is a story, the conversation with the youth at Kerloiga, where he meets up with this mysterious youth, seemingly Mongorn, who is a source of timeless, mysterious Dinhyanika's wisdom. Colm Kill questions him alone, in secret. But it seems that even stories of this solidly human Colm Kill can be improved by the authority of the native pre-Christian poet's knowledge. It also suggests that the oral tradition was seen as something to be valued. Its value became even greater once the English Normans arrived. It was Henry II who took it for granted that Ireland was a backyard resource for England. And beside that, he needed a country where his not-very-bright son, John, could get to be king. Henry got shot of the young idiot by sending John off with a few friends in tow to go and be king of Ireland. A group of Irish nobles met him with a degree of courtesy and curiosity until John thought it would be really amusing to start yanking their beards for fun. He did just get back to England alive. Henry's next idea was maybe a better one. He sent his top propaganda monger, Gerald of Wales. Gerald was a Welsh monk very much against the Irish church. Mind you, he objected to all the Irish beards as well. Here's a quote. I can't do it with a Welsh accent, sorry. This people, then, is truly barbarous, being not only barbarous in their dress, but suffering their hair and beards to grow enormously. He told the English that the Irish were not capable of manufacturing goods from wool, flax or metal, and that Every one of them was fundamentally indolent and ignorant. Here's another quote. These people inhabit a country so remote from the rest of the world and are thus excluded from civilised nations. They learn nothing and practice nothing but the barbarism in which they are born and bred and which sticks to them like a second nature. Unfortunately, his writing continued to have a great deal of influence in England for a long time centuries. Yep, a bad story can survive and stick too. I recently found myself in St David's, in Wales, standing right in front of the tomb of Geraldus Cambrensis. I gave him a piece of my mind out loud. Well, I must have looked a bit of a nut, but I don't care. I enjoyed it. Oh, just one thing. Did you know that Gerald wrote a werewolf story set in Ireland? It's the earliest werewolf story I know of. Clerics, in some ways following in the wake of the Feely, and the secular poets, those unqualified bards, kept on collating and curating the native tradition. Some, as the Roman church grabbed hold, tried to bring the native and biblical narratives into a better parallel. This, understandably, could come across as a bit awkward at times. The Book of Invasion does contain a few mashups. There was this tendency to add a closing, if depressing, baptism and death motive. It usually happened after a meeting with Patrick. 
Sometimes, though, I almost feel that they were having fun, quietly showing off their knowledge and erudition. You want creation and flood stories? Well, we've got them and to spare, although our stories also have magical and learned cities in the north. Well, there are plagues, if you like, but plenty of sensible land clearing. And yes, if you want treasures, we've got four, and they are very impressive. You want heroes like David? Well, we've got Lou, and so on and so on. Hmm, remote from civilization indeed. But what I like is that there is no attempt to retroactively refit a creation of the people. No god, Christian or otherwise, forms these people. When the Daedonin get to Ireland, they become the people because they make things. They are the people of great craft. Now that's one in the eye for old Gerald. As the journey continues into the creative 15th century, the storytellers, clerical or secular, are still enjoying themselves. Now there are literary retellings that give them every opportunity to demonstrate their easy familiarity with a range of classical tales, Greek and Roman. And they are unapologetically presenting old Irish stories as equal, if not better than the Greek or Roman ones. They're also putting in jokes. There's a great literary tale called The Children of Turin. It's a story where Brian and his two brothers, the sons of Turin, have to provide Lou with a slightly insane level of blood-priced treasure in recommence for the loss of his father. Now, this story is something of an Irish Argonautica, but it's also a bit of a European travelogue as they cross the oceans in Mananan's speedy boat, acquiring a wide spectrum of magical treasures through prowess and verbal dexterity. But this is no heavyweight tragedy, and it would have certainly brought a grin to its intended audience. For instance, Brian decides that he and his brothers should pose as travelling poets. When his brothers protest that they have absolutely no skill at poetry whatsoever, Brian tells them not to worry. Just pretend. Just make it up. After all, he tells them, they don't understand our native language, but if we speak Irish, they will automatically assume that we are worthy poets. Yeah, uh, there, there is one joke included that might still even be familiar. At one point, they say they went to Athens, knocked at the gates, but everyone was out. I like the style. Oh yes, and it's the only Irish story I know which includes the hero wearing a diving helmet. There's another literary tale called Tyg in Mananan's Isles, or Tyg in the Islands of the Blessed. Here, the young Tyg is shown around the Irish otherworld. It's a sumptuous story, but it does take an irreverent pop at a lot of ideas, including the potentially annoying innocence of a world that has no original sin, as well as both the pre-Norman and post-Norman kingship and clerics. Now, you may have come across an old and rather tasteless joke at some time or somewhere. It usually focuses on St Peter showing a newcomer around heaven. The new arrival comments on an area cut off by a very high wall. When asked about the wall, Peter replies that there, it's there so that the people on the other side think they're the only ones in heaven. Of course, the butt of the story depends on who is telling it. 
what I hadn't realised is that this joke dates back to 15th century Ireland. Tiger's shown an island in a river surrounded by a golden wall. When he asks for an explanation, he's informed that's so the monks think that they are the only ones who have managed to get here. In this setting, it's an amusing poke at some of the more austere Imrova. Stories, great flapping ribbons of shape space-time, blowing, uncoiling, and evolving. Yes, they've changed in approach and purpose, but they have survived. Their Irish curators recorded and told them in such a manner that we can look back at the journey those flapping ribbons of space-shape-time have taken over the centuries. Oh, we may not be able to avoid those leering, inflated, ghastly green leprechauns every March, but thanks to our long-ago story curators, we can still find out that Lubicorns were once small but fierce fighting warriors with a terrible sense of humour who lived beneath the waves of the sea and, by the way, who directly influenced Jonathan Swift's satire Gulliver. That's why my journey as a storyteller is a bit of a ramble. Oh, I like surprising views, unexpected paths. I don't even mind getting lost now and again or falling in the mud. But I do like to be able to look back and reflect on the route that I've taken. I feel much the same about stories. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.